Hello, my name is Justin Goss. Welcome to the GPPR podcast. I am the Editor-in-Chief of Georgetown Public Policy Review, and we are thrilled to be joined today by the latest class of GU Politics Spring Fellows. Woo! Great to be here. <laughs> yeah. Thanks for having us. Uh, welcome back to the Hilltop, everybody. And as always, we're joined by my silent partner, Senior Interview Editor, Kevin Barslow. So, can everybody just go around and introduce themselves, just names and... Uh, Anything else you feel like sharing? Uh, I'm Marlon Marshall. Uh, it's great to be here as Spring Fellow, uh, partner of 270 Strategies, and uh, worked on the Hillary 2016 campaign. Tony Say, great to be with you and your listeners. Uh, Fox News contributor, uh, was at Jamestown Associates, which was the media partner and vendors and advisors for the Trump-Pence campaign. Uh, Jen Saki, uh, great to be here. I live right around the corner, so it's a close commute for me. Um, I was the White House Communications Director until uh, about a week ago. Uh, Anna Palmer, uh, great to be here. I am Senior Washington Correspondent at Politico and co-author of the Morning Tip Sheet Playbook. Great. Welcome, everybody. Um, so diving right into it, last semester we asked the fellows to tell us what their daily ritual was, playing off of Hillary Clinton's eating a hot pepper every morning to like stay, <laughs> stay energized. Um, so... The election went a little bit di- a little bit differently, uh, though, and so our current president has shared that he eats an above-average amount of fast food. So I wanted to know what your guilty pleasure was, and or what's one food that you can't live without? Chips. Of any, just of any kind. It doesn't matter. Okay. The crunches. <laughs> it's all good with me. <laughs> Well, first I'll start by saying the election went according to plan, uh, from, my, from, my, from my perspective. From my, my singular perspective. Um, pizza and bagels, man. I'm a New Yorker. Yeah. Uh, is coffee considered a food group? I would consider that what for, I can't live without. People, yeah. I can barely speak before I've had coffee in the morning. <laughs> uh, I would say... Burritos. Oh. From? I, just in general. Okay. I mean, I think if I could eat Mexican food every single meal of every single day. We're learning things about each other. I know, right? I'm a Californian, so I could totally and you're, relate. Yeah. You're providing burritos, I understand, for your discussion group. Uh, yes, That's anybody who would like to come. Give her a plug for her food and listen. <laughs> Why not? Well, that's a perfect segue, so I appreciate that. Um, that's what so, I do. <laughs> um, you do it well. Uh, so can you just tell us briefly what each of your discussion groups are in name and what you're hoping students are going to come away with? Sure. So Anna, uh, I am going to talk about Trump's Washington, looking at kind of different segments of that. A lot of it will be over the media. I plan on it being very topical based on what happens. Uh, clearly, like the news cycle, there's two of them every 24 hours these days. So uh, get a lot of good guest speakers, but everything from kind of setting the stage of what's happening in Washington to celebrity politics to kind of the unsettling of settled politics. Uh, this is Jen. Uh, I'm going to talk about social media, the good, the bad, and the unknown. Uh, this is a really interesting time with the media, and there are a lot of opportunities in social media to uh, communicate through, to engage through, uh, but there are also a lot of dangers, and we've seen that 
through the use of propaganda, um, through the use of, um, of social media by terrorist organizations. So what I hope to get out of it is really some ideas from the students and from people who attend the discussion groups because the reality is professionals like all of us don't have all the answers. Um, so I'm hoping uh, to get a lot of ideas from the discussion. So this is Tony. We're going to essentially uh, engage in a retrospective of this past presidential cycle, which clearly was the most dynamic in all of our lifetimes. And dynamic certainly, is one word for it. <laughs> I'll, I'll throw in unpredictable in our, in our lifetime. And yeah, like Anna, reviewing how Trump has changed things. Now, one of the things I suggest is there'll be a few things, and this is why we're having the discussion, that might be changed for a generation politically. And there are a few things that might just be exclusive to his candidacy. And that is really an ongoing conversation practitioners are having all over this city and across the country from both sides that we now want to include the students on. The second piece is what really has changed electorally and demographically? Have we seen a realignment of the upper Midwest, the Rust Belt states, to a more conservative populist message versus the realignment of other parts of the country? where minority group and demographics are increasing, like Colorado and Nevada, to, to more of a democratic coalition. These are two essential questions that are being discussed in a wide range of people from the corridors of power to media to policy, and that's why I think it's important to bring the GU students into the, into the mix. Uh, and this is Marlon. We're going to be talking about organizing and social justice, uh, and so looking at a lot of the history uh, in our country and around the world of uh, big movements that have happened. I believe that all big policies happened because people, the public got together and organized uh, and pushed the ball forward from the civil rights movement to the voting rights. Uh, and in this new era, as you mentioned, uh, what does that mean for social justice and how do we organize to make sure our voices are heard, both to not only protect uh, some of the gains that we've made, uh, but also how do we keep moving the ball forward um, in this country? Great. Tony brought up the dynamism of, uh, of the most recent election, and that was on display last semester during the fellows discussion groups, where they came in with like the set curriculum, but then you know breaking headlines would would kind of shift the shift the news conversation, and they ended up incorporating certain themes of what was going on in current events into their into their um, discussion groups. Do you have any plans because we're seeing? With this new administration, as, as is often the case, we're seeing breaking news in terms of policy and politics pretty much every day. Can uh, students who come to your discussion groups expect some of those themes to be worked into your discussion groups? Yeah, yeah. for sure. <laughs> <laughs> resounding yes from yeah. all of us. Well, I, I would think, just listening to all of their discussion, this Marlon, listening to their discussion groups yesterday, I think all of ours are a little bit malleable, for lack of a better word, in terms of, and I think we're planning as such, knowing that this semester is going to be a little bit yeah, I mean, you know, as I looked at mine, and I think it's probably the same for all of my colleagues here, the the first joint speech to the joint session, uh, the end of February, I think is an opportunity to really talk about, for me, social media and how President right. Trump will use it, and is it being effectively used? What should they be doing? What's working and what's not? And I think, obviously, for uh, Anna and Tony and Marlon, there's lots of ways to incorporate events like that, even uh, ones you can predict. Great. Um, Going off of that, we're seeing, so, I mean, this is not unique to this administration. All the way back to, like, Adams and Jefferson, we see when one administration transitions into another, frequently there's a lot of turnover in policies that we kind of got used to and thought were maybe permanent. Um, and, we're, and we're definitely seeing that on display with executive orders and the new Congress and everything in this administration. 
what is one policy that if you could enshrine it into permanency forever and it could never be taken away, what's like one program or policy that you would spend that wild card on? Freedom of the press. <laughs> That's a good one. Um, That's Anna. This is, this is not an easy question. It's a good no, one not. to a answer in one word. I would say that um, the Affordable Care Act needs some changes, and I say that as a Democrat who worked in the White House when it was put into <laughs> place, no question. But um, I think there's some real dangers happening now with this effort to repeal without a replacement. And you've seen that because they haven't been able to figure out a replacement. So I would enshrine some aspects of the Affordable Care Act um, because there are more than 20 million people who have health care. And uh, there are a lot of dangers of kind of just doing away with it without a plan. So, as you could probably expect, I uh, come to this from a slightly different perspective. Uh, <laughs> this, this, is, this, this is Tony, by the way. Um, exactly. No introduction necessary. Uh, I think if you are the incoming administration, you viewed the last eight years of basically being where executive power increased in, in some people's this probably perspective a little too much. So I think the emphasis on kind of getting rid of the old executive orders has as much to do with basically the role of the executive branch as much as it does the actual specific policies. Um, I think with this administration, what you're going to see is a singular focus, an almost non-ideological focus on job creation. I think President Obama was exactly right when he described Donald Trump as a pragmatist. Um, I don't know the last time we could truly say the President of the United States was more pragmatic than ideological um, on either side, by the way. So that's what I think is going to create a lot of these dynamic moments of what he's really going to champion. And I would suggest as far as something that's important to enshrine is the idea that uh, Americans, hardworking Americans, should be able to keep a lot more of their hard-earned money. And I think you're going to see a huge emphasis on tax reform uh, and tax cuts, certainly in the first 200 days of the administration. So I'm going to take Tony's wild card because he can use it. Uh, <laughs> so I have two. Um, I, one, I agree with Jen. This is a hard question because I think there's a lot of different things that are happening in the past seven or eight days. Um, I agree. The, the Affordable Care Act um, uh, is, I think, something that has saved lives. Um, and so I would definitely want to keep the parts of that that continue forward and fix the parts that we need fixing. Uh, and then all the things that are starting to happen to immigrant families. Uh, across the country, this is one, taking Tony's wild card, um, using it on that would be something that's important to me as well. Yeah, no, um, I, I we I think our listeners definitely appreciate the diversity of perspectives be, um, because it, it is it is a dynamic time in terms of the new the new administration. So it's interesting to hear what each of you with your different programs um, would protect or not protect in terms of policy. And even giving more power back to the legislature away from an expanded executive makes makes a lot of sense. Um, several several of your discussions allude to lessons learned from the election. What do you think was the biggest misconception that political experts or insiders had going into this election? The assumption that Hillary Clinton was <laughs> going to become the next president, which oh. I think a lot of Republicans, may, mean maybe even people on the Trump team, assumed and there was something that was missed by everyone from the White House to the campaign to the media about what was happening in the country and how people were responding to uh, to Donald Trump. I, I think polls. 
Bad year for holsters. Bad year for holsters. I think that that, seriously though, I mean, uh, one of the things, you know, I go around talking around the country and one of the things you said, the tenets of a campaign, Donald Trump blew up a lot of them. You know, you need to have a media, you need to have a ground campaign. And the third thing is the polls for, it wasn't just everyone thought, you know, ingrained that it was going to be Hillary Clinton. It was like 26 weeks of polls had said it was going to be Hillary Clinton. So I think the polling industry and and our reliance on polls uh, needs to be closely examined. Anna gave a better and more specific answer than I did. (laughs) (laughs) And Anna Anna is going to come to Tony's second week discussion group where we talk about how the pollsters and all the experts got it wrong. Two very prevailing things, both both a bit general, because this is a, a very good question, and I think a lot was basically misinterpreted, um, certainly the mood of the electorate. This was always a change election. Uh, consistent in polling, even those that showed Hillary Clinton with an advantage, showed that the majority of this country wanted a change in direction. She was always permanently the establishment candidate, and Donald Trump was always permanently the outsider candidate. So the fact that that dynamic was so misread I think it was something important to note. And then the second thing is, and I, I don't mean to certainly um, disparage colleagues, and by the way, I'm talking, as Jen said, people on my side too, who never imagined this outcome <laughs> as well. I think the problem with analysts and pundits, particularly those who don't have roots in practicing politics, which is important for your audience, is they follow kind of the group think of each other and they repeat each other because they want to be validated in their opinion by people they consider smart. Mm-hmm. And sometimes it's important to stake out a lot more objective analysis uh, rather than just follow the crowd. Yeah. People who have been in the trenches. Correct. Yeah. Uh, I, polls, I agree. Uh, I think also just honestly that uh, your headline of your session is kind of the question that we all uh, need to answer just like, populism and we missed that and I mean he didn't he obviously won against uh, Hillary Clinton who I worked for but he also took out about 16 Republicans in the primary mm-hmm. um, yeah. and so that that is also both of those questions are, are big things that was no one thought he was going to win the, nom- the Republican nomination as yeah. well um, so what does populism mean in America and in the world because you're starting to see that in many other countries as well uh, this is part of a larger larger discussion, but I would uh, just for our listeners push back a little bit on the idea that the polls were wrong. And you said misinterpreted, which I more so tend to agree with. Yeah. Then, then again, it should be known I'm a uh, Nate Silver acolyte, and, <laughs> and, and so yeah, and so yeah, the the idea that like the polls were wrong because like the national polls showed Hillary Clinton winning by like one to two percentage points, which which ended up playing out. Um, and a lot of people misinterpreted or ignored the polls on the state level. Um, where they showed a high degree of uncertainty and volatility. And in fact, a lot of people who claimed they were undecided, especially in the Midwest, where the election ended up uh, hinging on, ended up uh, making up their mind within like the last week of prior to the election where the polls couldn't capture that. Um, but I do, but I to- point totally well taken that uh, that the polls should absolutely be discussed and definitely how di- uh, many media outlets interpreted them. Um, moving, moving into specific questions for you all. Um, Marlon, I didn't didn't expect you all to be sitting in, sitting in this order. <laughs> <laughs> That's, this is, you knew. <laughs> this is this is great radio. People, people who can't actually see where we're sitting. Um, but Marlon, um, you so you spent time working on the My Brother's Keeper initiative in the past. 
Um, can you talk to our listeners who might not be familiar with the program about how it was constructed and how it works? Yeah. Um, so when I was in the White House, 2013-2014, uh, the president launched uh, My Brother's Keeper, which was an initiative to um, focus on young men and boys of color. Um, it came up with basically six different criteria on um, how can we help a young person of color's life, um, making sure they're able to read by third grade. Um, and there's, there's these life intervention points that if you are able to help out, um, you can help a person succeed. And when you look at those data points, it can ultimately help out everyone, not just you know, a person of color, but everyone. Um, when we were at the White House, the way we implemented it was by working with cities across the country to each come up with their plan um, to be able to pick two of those six and say, what is the city going to do and how can the administration support it? And um, it was probably one of the some of the greatest work I've ever been involved with, um, uh, not just with the president, but period, because it was uh, to see lives change was amazing. Yeah, it seemed like seems like a fantastic program, it and and it's and uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but it's like a combination of multiple different programs that were sort of already in place. Yeah, it looked at different like across the federal government, there was you know every agency had something that was in, um, focusing on this, and so how do you bring all those resources together? and really focus them on strategic outcomes. Uh, and I, I know it's something that's important to President Obama and will uh, continue in some fashion as he uh, enters post-presidency. Absolutely. Um, Jen, so you uh, you were previously, as you said, the White House Communications Director, and you focused on traditional and non-traditional media uh, within the Obama administration that got to leverage social media um, in brand new ways, uh, unlike any other administration. Um, what role do you think social media is going to play in the Trump administration, and how might he uh, uh, how might he diverge from uh, the Obama administration's use of it? Sure. Well, I think we don't know yet, and this is one of the things I bet you we will all be discussing in our discussion groups because the use of social media in uh, the White House is very new. Um, when we came in, when I came into the White House in 2009, we called the department New Media, which tells you everything you need to know. Uh, and we really experimented with a lot of different platforms. Um, some worked, some didn't. I'm sure the Trump administration will do the same thing. What is different is that it appears to be that President Trump is using Twitter as his primary form of getting information out, and that was not. Uh, the case for the Obama administration. For us, it was just another channel. What I do think that uh, President Trump and President Obama had in common is that their tweets are authentic. Whatever you think of them, whether they're factual or not, they were authentically in their voice. Um, and that is one of the mistakes that people make in how they use social media uh, as a government official. So we'll see. There's lots of new channels that are coming out that we don't even know about that may exist in six months or eight months or 12 months. Um, maybe Twitter will be irrelevant in two years. Um, as trends go, it could be. Um, so it should be an interesting uh, area to watch of the new administration. Interesting and dynamic, two words that keep coming. Keep yeah, <laughs> interesting. <laughs> Um, so, Tony and Anna, uh, your groups respectively are titled New World Order and Has the 2016 Election Changed Politics Forever? Uh, does this mean that you think that this paradigm shift could have long-lasting implications? I think 
I'm interested in looking at the short-term implications, and maybe that can be instructive for how we look at it in five and ten years, but I think certainly for what I do as a practitioner of being on the Hill and covering Washington and the interplay between Congress and the White House, this is unlike anything that has ever happened uh, in my lifetime anyway, and probably even beyond that. So. What I'm trying to do is, with my discussion groups and hearing from the students, too, is getting their perspective of how they think things have changed and how things are either working or they aren't working uh, in the Trump administration. You bring up the, the central kind of objective of our discussion group, which is to understand what are the long-term implications. And we're going to be retrospective at first. We have to re-examine what happened uh, to really digest it. Then we're going to, like Anna, view uh, the present and see what changes do happen in the short term. But really what I'd love to know by the end of this, because this is not an answer that I've certainly heard in any finite way, what is the future of politics going to look like now, especially from the political candidate campaign perspective? And those are certainly questions we're going to try to you know, at least get some sort of resolution to. Last question for you all. Um, Tony, so you, you mentioned policy, but also politics. So what, and uh, what was it like going from the policy analysis side of things, working in Governor Pataki's office, uh, to uh, the politics side of things when you were elected as the deputy mayor of Tuckahoe? Yeah, that's right. Tuckahoe. <laughs> um, so I'm the son of immigrants, first generation American. The reason I start by saying that is because the idea of public service and love of country and patriotism was embedded in a very young age for me. And I always look for opportunities uh, to serve within that realm. So sometimes it manifested in a more public policy elected official role. Sometimes it manifested as being part of the process and obviously working on campaigns and advancing candidacies and ideas. Um, I received my master in public administration, so clearly I do have a big interest in the actual mechanics of governing and getting things done. Uh, but I think, and you know, Jen's group and everyone's group, frankly, touches on this a lot. Um, there are so many opportunities to get involved with politics and public policy today. It's not the old traditional avenues. So you can do it through media, you can do, do it through activism and organizing, you can do it through uh, being part of an administration and uh, at any level, even in the legislative side. So um, I've loved it every single time. I constantly find myself like Pacino in Godfather 3, just when I thought I was out, they pull me back in. I've not given, <laughs> I've, not, I've not joined the, the, the big, you know, corporate world yet to, to make money on this stuff, maybe one day, but I still love doing it. Someday we'll all get real <laughs> one, day we'll, one day we'll all grow up. Then I tell my mom. <laughs> Next year, Mom. This is encouraging for two MPP students. <laughs> <laughs> Don't get a real job. Yeah. Just have fun. Yeah. Really enjoy. Yeah. You don't need it. So anyway, that's it. Loved it. So this, so this was great. Thank you all so much for your time. I know that you have a busy, busy day of orientation. Uh, thank you for doing Thank you. Yeah. Thanks, everybody. This Thanks has been listening. GPPR Podcast, sitting down with the GU Politics New Classic Spring Fellows. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of the GPPR podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. If you're interested in more, check out gppreview.com, our Facebook page, GPP Review, and our Twitter, at GP Policy Review.